Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about the church in Hebrews. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to share with you a pretty big announcement. Next month, I will be transitioning into a new role as the lead pastor of Pathway Church in Gresham, Oregon. Thus, I will no longer be the pastor at Creekside. There's a lot that has led to this change, but it suffices to say that it's clear that this is the next step that God has for me, my family, and even Creekside. This means that it won't be my sermons that you hear on this podcast anymore. Some of you have listened to our sermons for years and years. I want you to know that I appreciate it so much, and I really hope that you'll continue to do so. Matt Canary, who preaches for us often, you maybe have heard him on this podcast, will be the interim pastor. He's a great preacher. I'm also sure that whoever is the next lead pastor at Creekside will be a great communicator too. Our church values impactful preaching of the Bible. At the same time, I'd love for you to continue to listen to my sermons. You'll be able to find those by going to pathwaychurch.net. They don't send their sermons to podcast yet, but hopefully soon. This is a big change, but the goal of Creekside and the goal of these sermons has not changed one bit. And so with that in mind, I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So as I finish up here at Creekside, I want to do what I have, have always done uh, from the very beginning. And that is that I want to point our church to the things that God has called the church to do and to be about. Uh, I don't know if you know this about my time here, but when I started, Creekside was a a dying church and I had spent my entire ministry life in it. Uh, I was the youth pastor and then the associate pastor and I had seen really um, beautiful fruit through the ministry uh, that God allowed me to do here, specifically uh, with our young adults. But the church as a whole uh, had had pretty much shrunk from the day I was hired. Uh, I don't think it was my doing, but uh, the, the 15-hour-a-week youth pastor doesn't have a ton of control over over the happenings of the church. But it, but it had kind of shrunk and was dying. And and so when they asked me to be the new lead pastor, wasn't a lot of people left. There wasn't a lot of health. There was hardly any unity, and there wasn't that many people to have disunity amongst. And at the same time, I, you know, I was educated. I had got my degree in pastoral studies and my master's of divinity and, and all of that. But, but I really didn't know what to do as you lead a church. I, I had not been invested in in that way and, and things hadn't gone well. So I knew I couldn't just copy what I had seen. And so I, I just began to ask this, this question. And it's like, well, what does the Bible actually say that a church needs to be about? And so I read the New Testament just with an eye towards trying to figure that out. If you've been through our connection course, our, our um, membership class, then, then you've seen the chart that I produced in those moments. And, and we set off uh, as, as a small group of you know, young leaders that I, I was working with at the time, uh, we set off to, to try to figure out how we could be obedient to the things that God had commanded us in our church. 
Uh, and, and we did that and we, we saw great success and, and I think the church became better and better and better and better. And, uh, and it was healthy and it was good and there was vibrancy and, and there is still, even though all of the struggles that we've been through uh, in the last handful of years. And that's how I want to finish, by doing the same thing that I started with. I want to point you, as you undergo this transition, to some of the commands that God makes for the church. And we're going to do that specifically in the book of Hebrews. I want to look at just a handful of verses in the book of Hebrews, sections of the book of Hebrews, And I want to call this church um, to be about living out the things that God has commanded you to be about as a congregation. And so today we're going to begin with with something that I think is so simple, but it's not easy. You know, those types of things in your life, the things that it's like, oh, well, that's so simple. But you're like, I really, that's really hard to do at the same time. And it's going to be in Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. And I think we're going to see this thing that, that is so utterly important. In fact, let me, just, let me just tell you what's at the heart of it. I mean, here's the question. If there was something you could do, this is what this answers, this passage of scripture. If there was something that you could do that would help other people in your church not turn away from God, would you do it? And I think you go, yeah. But we have one of those things in this section, Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. We have one of those things. And yet I don't see a lot of it in the American church as a whole. And frankly, I don't see enough of it in our congregation, even though I think our congregation probably would get an above average grade when it comes to what we're going to look at in Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. But before I get to that and what that is, this thing that can actually help people in your church not turn away from God, let me give you a little bit of background um, kind of leading up to this in the book of Hebrews. It begins with an incredible statement about Jesus being God's final word for humanity. It's a beautiful passage. <clears throat> it goes on to talk about Jesus being greater than the angels, combating the angel worship that was happening at the time. And then from there, there's a warning. It's a warning I'll read to you later. And then after that, there's this large section on the humanity of Jesus. And then right before our section, there's a, uh, another passage about Jesus being greater than Moses. And so to this point, really what we have in large part is this high kind of deep, important Christology, this, this lesson on Christ and who he is and how we should view him as God and man and greater than the angels and greater than Moses, the supreme being, God's final word to humanity. And so here's this a pretty heavy book. I mean, that's really, I mean, these first few chapters, that's really kind of heavy topics, big theological things. And then we have this very practical command for church, for you and me and those who attend a local body of Christians who show up, who are part of this family, this very practical command. But it doesn't start, this passage, this section doesn't start with the command. It starts with what is at stake when it comes to this command. Listen to Hebrews 3.12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
I want to point out that um, this section actually begins with Hebrews 3.7. We're not going to cover that today, but the section actually begins with Hebrews 3.7. And then there's, right after Hebrews 3.7, there's a long quote from the Psalm, Psalms 95, 7 through 11. You should read it. That would be instructive for this passage. I'm not going to do that. Um, But then it continues on, you know, like almost like the Psalms is a a parenthetical statement. And so really almost what we see here, if you were to go back to verse seven is so as the Holy Spirit says, so as the Holy Spirit says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now I bring this up for just two reasons, two reasons that I think are important. The first is that the Bible, we've talked about this and the the clues to this in the book of Revelation, but the Bible is the inspired word of God given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's another statement that says, look, what I'm giving you is from the Holy Spirit. But the other and maybe more important reason for today that I say, hey, we need to connect this to verse seven is that what I'm going to say to you, the command that we are given here is simple, but hard. And when you really pay attention to it, I think your first reaction is going to be, that sounds nice. And then I think your second reaction is going to be, I don't have time for that. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how I would do that. I don't want to do that. And I want you to remember, as you go to thing number two that maybe might happen in your mind, I want you to remember that what we are going to read comes from the Holy Spirit. This is God commanding you to be about something, to do something as a part of the body of Christ, as part of being a Christian that is in fellowship with other Christians, Christians that are connected to other Christians. Now, listen, here's the deal. I just, I'm just going to kind of make a note of this and I'll let you figure it out on your own. But uh, there are several sections in the book of Hebrews and, and what I just read to you is one of them uh, that, that lend themselves to the debate about whether or not Christians can lose their salvation, this issue of eternal security. And I just want to say a few things about that that I consistently say. And then later, over lunch or whatever, you guys can argue about it all you want. Um, But I just want to say the things that I always kind of say about, about that debate. The first is that the two sides are not as far apart as they sometimes seem to be. I mean, one side, when it comes to this question, says that a person uh, can stop being a Christian. They can leave their salvation behind. The other side says, if a person appears to be a Christian, stops being Christian, they weren't really one. But we actually end up in exactly the same place, do we not? And this is point number two. If a person isn't a Christian, then they're not a Christian. That's how I fall in this argument. If a person isn't a Christian, they're not a Christian. Everybody agrees on that. There is no place, this is important, this is another point, there is no place for some of these extremes within this argument. Uh, For example, tattoo theology. I kind of stole that's my phrase, but I kind of took it from an example. But tattoo theology says that that becoming a Christian is like getting a tattoo. If a person is four years old, they pray a prayer, signed on them. They never live a single day for Jesus. They never think about Jesus again. They never talk to Jesus. They never read about Jesus. They never worship Jesus. Then they're good. They're going to heaven because, you know, they got the tattoo. That's not biblical. 
That's not a thing. That's just, there's no category like that in scripture that doesn't exist. Now on the other side of that, the other kind of extreme that exists is, is what my dad and my uncle both thought, felt growing up in a church that, that was very much on the, you can leave your salvation behind side, but they grew up. I don't think this was the intent, but they grew up in a culture of church, and I've known other people too, that made it seem as though every day you had to become a Christian again. It's like if you committed one sin, you're out. Now you get on your knees. You say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. Thank you. I accept your gift of salvation. You become a Christian again. There's no category for this. There is nowhere in scripture that says a couple of sins means that you're, you're out. If you're a follower of Jesus, to say it the other way, then you are a follower of Jesus. I mean, that's just the reality. If you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus. If you die while committing a sin, I won't worry about your soul at all. If you are a true follower of Jesus, you will go to heaven. Even if your last thing was a lie. It shouldn't be. I hope you don't go out like that. But even if your last thing was a lie, you'll still be in heaven if you're a follower of of Jesus. And then there's this other extreme that only seems to be in, you know, I don't know, higher theological circles. And, and, I, and I, 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 uh, I read this example somewhere. It's a real story with this guy who had been a faithful follower of Jesus his entire life. And he was a person that believed that in perseverance of the saints, eternal security, that if you're a Christian, you will remain a Christian until the very end. But because of this, he spent his entire life worrying that he wasn't a real Christian. And so he's on his deathbed praying, God, let me remain faithful so that I know I'm a true believer. The Bible does not present tattoo theology or you're in and out of a relationship with Jesus based on your sins or that you need to sit around and worry about whether your faith is real or not if you're actively following Jesus. Instead, you should hold to the fact that you are saved by only faith in Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus and you cling tightly to that faith, you're trying to follow Jesus, then you should take great hope and trust in your salvation, not worrying about it or questioning it at all. I think that's whatever side of the argument you come down on, you need to, to fall in that kind of circle. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, you are actively following Jesus, then you should rest secure in your faith and know that you are saved. Avoiding these extremes, which by the way, are not really extremes that most good theologians would ever argue at all. It's just how it seems to trickle down sometimes to the people as they pick one of these sides and kind of dig in and say, well, I got to be on this side or the other. Now, our exhortation here is not dissimilar to Hebrews 2.1, which says something kind of similar. It's one of those passages that lends itself to this debate. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, I read you Hebrews 2.1, which is very similar to our passage for one reason. And that reason is that I want you to notice that it's communal in nature. One of our great problems as American Christians is that we always read the Bible in a singular way. Uh, because as Americans, we are by our nature, we grow up with this individualistic. It's me. 
We don't think in familiar terms. We don't think in we terms. We think in I terms. And I think so much of our society epitomizes that. And maybe what can be the problem with that right now when we're always focused on ourselves, what's best for me, what I want to do, uh, what I think is best, what my truth is. And the Bible, a lot of it, a lot of the things that we think about in the Bible as individual, because we're American modern Christians, are actually corporate commands. And I find this to be really fascinating, both in our passage and that Hebrews 2.1 passage, which the NIV translation brings out better. This is a we statement. We must pay the most careful attention so that to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. This is a corporate passage. This is us together collectively paying attention and fighting to not drift away from the things of Jesus, the truths of Jesus, and by extension of that, the person of Jesus. We must fight to cling tightly to him. And so, listen, this is important. It says here that we must be working so that we do not have unbelieving hearts that turn away from the living God together. And then it gives this, this incredible command that I would go out on a limb and say, none of us are being obedient to do too. Some of us are being probably closer to obedient than others, but none of us are actually being fully obedient to this command. Listen to this, but encourage one another. You like that part. Listen, look at the next word. It's so important. Daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now remember, this is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, it uses similar language to Psalm 95, what I, which I mentioned earlier, that kind of parenthetical psalm. And it's so important. God is saying to us that we, those of us that make up a church, must encourage one another daily. Daily, you are to encourage one another every single day. In fact, a lot of translations say that every day, and I think it makes it uh, more impactful in some way. I mean, daily, like, I don't know, we have daily habits. Sometimes we do them, sometimes we don't. But you are to be encouraging other Christians every day, every day. Now, listen, this isn't the only time in this book that we're actually told to encourage one another. Listen to Hebrews 12, 24 through 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, let me again point out what's at stake here. You're like, that sounds nice. It would be good to be encouraged daily. It would be nice if I could take some time out of my day to encourage some more people. That's great. But, but what God does through the author of Hebrews is he, he makes this an incredibly big deal. Because did you notice the so that? When you see so that, that's important to know what it comes after. It's so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need to encourage one another every day so that none of us are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
This is a big deal. This isn't like encourage one another so people feel liked. This isn't encourage one another because life can be hard. Encourage one another because it's a good thing to do. This is encourage one another so that nobody is hardened, so people's hearts aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And sin does lie to us, does it not? Most people who walk away from the faith however you want to define that. Most people who walk away from the faith do so because they allow for sin to creep in and sin tells them lies. I mean, like God doesn't want what's best for you. God doesn't really care about this. God's not real. And then over time, people fall away from the faith. Sin lies to us and it moves us to believe more and more lies and it actually turns people away from God. And so what can you do to help other people not fall into that trap? Encourage one another every day, every single day. So here's a question. This is really important. What does it mean to actually encourage one another? What does that mean? And it, it's an interesting word. It's actually an interesting Greek word that's in, clan, in that is translated encourage because it has a, a fairly broad uh, meaning, definition. And, and I think that, uh, that actually this, this kind of broad definition of this word is really instructive for what encouragement can look like. And so let me just give you like some of the things that it can be defined as to admonish or to exhort or to comfort or to cheer even. It can be translated or defined as cheer or to help. And I think that's so beautifully broad because when we think about what people need in order to not be hardened by sin, the deceitfulness of sin, they need all of that. Now, these are, are really, uh, in my mind, kind of churchy words. I know they're just American words, uh, English words, but, but we don't use the word exhort a lot or admonish a lot. And so let me just, just kind of define these English words um, in order to help us understand them. And maybe you're just like, Chad's an idiot if he thought this was needed, but that's okay. I'll do it anyway. Ready? So to admonish means to like call somebody out on something you know, to point out something that's not quite right, that's off, that doesn't look the way that it should look. Um, exhort means to urge somebody to do something. You're like pushing them to do something, maybe to get better, maybe to leave something behind. So one is a call out and one is, is really to push somebody to, to do something different. Uh, we know what, what comfort is, right? I mean, we know what comforting is. And, and so think about this. When you're called to encourage one another every single day. I mean, sometimes you'll need to call out somebody's sin. And sometimes you'll need to call people to something greater that maybe they don't even know that they can get to. Maybe they don't even know that they can be different and be better, but you're going to call them to it. And some days we'll just have to call them and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I know what you're going through. I know the struggle. I know the pain and it's going to be okay. I think of two things when I think about kind of this broad idea of encouraging one another. I think of parenting first. I mean, if you don't have all of those in your playbook as a parent, then you're not going to be a great parent. If you always and only are patting your kids on the back and saying it's going to be okay, you're not going to raise a very good human, right? Like if you never say to your son, daughter, that's not okay, what you're doing is wrong, it's not good, then 
you're just not going to have a great human on your hands when they get older. You have to call that. You have to call out the bad behavior, right? But then at other times, you're just trying to inspire your child. You're just trying to say, you can be better. You can do better. I expect you to do great things. And then at other times, you do have to pat them on the back. I mean, I see this all the time with my kids. I mean, obviously, there are times when I discipline my children. I say that things aren't okay. Uh, the number one thing in our family is you got to get ready faster in the morning. I know it's not some sinful behavior, but disobedience is. So, uh, and so, I mean, this is a terrible one. Every day we, we are saying, hey, you, this is not okay. I mean, this is not okay. But, but other times, like, this is one of the things I've tried to make a habit and my kids hate it, but I think they'll love it when they're adults. And I maybe have said this in a sermon before, but after I pray for them, I'll try to look them in the eyes and I'll, I'll just identify things within them that I think are unique and important and special and then finish it with something like, and I think God's going to use that for big things. And then at other times, and my kids aren't, they don't love being comforted, but but every now and then they let me comfort them. You know, usually they run away screaming, I don't want you when they've hurt themselves. But uh, uh, but, uh, but Bryn comforts them. Uh, and so my wife comforts them. She uses this one. But no, sometimes it's just like, hey, it's okay. You messed that one up. You hurt yourself. It's going to be okay. Coaching is the other one where I where I, you have to have all those. You got to be all those things. I mean, I coach my kids in sports and and. Man, it's really hard not just to admonish all the time when you're coaching little kids sports because they're just not that good. You know, like, I mean, T-ball's not awesome. Uh, and I just want to be like, wrong, 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 wrong. But you know what I do with my kids? Because I'm so wired and I've passed this trait down to my daughter. I'm so wired to just admonish and just point out the negative. Like we get to the car and, and I try, this is what we do after every, almost every sporting event. We get to the car and we talk about three things that the kid who played did well. I, because everything in me wants to point out the 15 things they did wrong. And so I get to the car and just to shut myself down more than anything, when I started this practice, I just say, here's three things. You ran fast at third base. You hit that ball almost to the outfield um, and you made a nice play at first base. And, and that's it. There's no, I don't follow that up because I, I know that my playbook would include a lot of just, you did it wrong. I'm wired that way. Um, Matt's played a lot of sports with me. He knows that that's like who I am to myself. Like, it's like, you got to do better. You got to do better. But I have to sometimes just encourage to something greater. And obviously there's tons of comfort. It's okay. You'll get them next time. Um, it wasn't that bad, uh, all of those things. And this, now look, you expect that from a parent, right? You expect that from a coach, but God expects it from you to the people that you are in relationship with through church. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? I mean, you got to be able to call people out. You got to be able to call people to something greater. And you got to be able to call people when they're struggling to offer some comfort. It is an expectation that God has for his people unto one another. This is a command of God for his church. And, and by the way, I love this. I love this. I think this is so, so important. The word for encouragement, that word that I've just spent five, 10 minutes on, that word is actually the noun form, or excuse me, the verbal form of the noun that is given to the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is called 
an, encomfort, uh, an encourager or a comforter for us. That's, that's part of his job in our life. The Holy Spirit does those things. He admonishes us. He exhorts us. He comforts us. That's part of what God's Holy Spirit, who indwells every person who becomes a Christian, does for us. He does those things for us. And by the way, verse 7 again, the Holy Spirit says these things to us. So the Holy Spirit, who dwells inside of us who are Christians, is doing these things for us and inviting us to be a part of what he is already doing in believers' lives. I think that's so cool and such a great call for those of us that are Christians. And I think you like it all. I think the only part of this passage that we really have a problem with is every day. (laughs) Because we are really individualistic. I have a job and I have responsibilities and I have things in my house I have to take care of and I'm a parent and I'm coaching my kids sports. I, 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 I have so many things that I need to do. And so I guess what we're really saying is and so I don't really care if you fall away from Jesus. I didn't look at the whole New Testament in preparation for this sermon, but I'm not sure there's any other command of us as Christians that says that the so that is so that other Christians continue to live for Jesus and aren't, uh, don't you know, move away from Jesus because they are lied to by sin. I don't know that there's any other command for us as Christians that have that kind of weight to it. And so you need to be a person that encourages other Christians every single day, every single day. Uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, who wrote a commentary on Hebrews, says it should be practiced by and for, by and for. I love that, by and for. There's something we must do, but it's something that we hope to receive, right? By and for all the readers so that there not be any from among you who fall short. The call, therefore, is for a constant attention to the commitment that the community has made. And then listen to this in verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. So what hangs in balance is is people's souls, but why should that compel us to do something different? Hopefully you know the answer to this, but the answer is given to us. We have come to share in Christ. Your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters have come to the same faith as you. We've come to believe that we are all sinners and that we need a savior and that Jesus came from heaven to earth, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life, never committing a single sin. At the end of that life, he suffered and died on our behalf. He paid the punishment of hell for us. He came to die. He died and he rose again three days later. He did it all so that people who might come to him will be saved forever from their sins. They'll be saved. They're forgiven and they're saved. The NIV leaves off a really important word from verse 14. And the word is for. It's a connector. It connects it. You should encourage one another daily so that nobody was hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for because 
You have come to share in Christ because you, who are Christians, have come to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. How could we not encourage one another daily so that nobody fades from that, so that nobody drifts from their Savior? By the way, this word share does not seem to be randomly selected here in our passage. Uh, The New Testament contains this word six times. Five of them are in the book of Hebrews. It's an important theological word in the book of Hebrews. The book describes us as sharers in our heavenly calling. It describes us as sharers in the Holy Spirit. It describes us as sharers in God's discipline. And here we are sharers in Christ or the Messiah as the Hebrew readers would have thought of him. We have come to share in these incredible things. It's the thing that binds us together. It's the thing that brings us together is that we share in Jesus and all of the things that Jesus has done for us and therefore given to us. I think it's important to pause here and say that that for you who are a part of this church, as you have a pastor who's leaving, there's a part of you I know that feels like what you share in is having Chad as your pastor. But that's never been the thing that you really share in. You share in Christ and all that Christ has given you. That's what you share in and that's the reason that you should care that other people not drift from their savior and that's the reason that you should encourage one another every single day. Now, Hebrews 3.15 finishes with something that's more subtle but I think super important. As has just been said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I missed that. This part's important right here. If indeed we hold original, uh, our original conviction firmly to the end, so we want it to last until the end, but then Hebrews 3.15, and just has been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. There's this, the sermon series is called Today, uh, and, and that'll come up a couple of times here uh, and, and through our series, and there seems to be an emphasis on, on today. And here in our passage, it's twofold. Uh, The first one really connects, um, or the second one connects to Psalm 95 and what's been said there, but the first one is important too. It says, as long as it's called today, and and here's what we can do. Here's what we can do, right? We can say tomorrow. Uh, I want to encourage people every day, and I will take care of that tomorrow. And the author, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's almost as if he hears that excuse coming and is like, do it today as long as today is called today, which every day is called today. Am I right? Like, I mean, what day is called today? Every day. Every day is called today. And so there's this just one more emphasis on don't put this off until tomorrow. Do it today. And then the last part, the second reason that today is important is the immediacy of people needing to come to believe says here like, hey, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't come to believe that Jesus is the one who died for your sins and who can save you from those sins by the power of his forgiveness and grace, you need to do it. You need to do it today. Don't harden yourselves. It calls us all the way back to the Exodus story through Psalm 95. Do not harden yourselves as really the people did in the wilderness who rejected God, made a golden calf and ended up... uh, 
ended up in exile, basically not entering into the promised land for 40 years uh, because of their unbelief. And so instead of that, if you're not a Christian, today's the day to stop hardening your heart and to become one. In fact, so many people do harden their hearts and, and that's the reason that they don't become Christians. They harden their hearts because of sin. They harden their hearts because of reputation. I mean, what does it feel like to now call myself a Christian? They harden their hearts because of uh, politics. They harden their hearts because of family pressure. So many people harden their hearts and this says don't. Instead, become a Christian. Uh, but now... Christians, I just want to make abundantly clear what I'm saying to you. You need to encourage one another every single day. I think that what is at the heart of this command is that there should not be a day ever, ever, where you don't find one Christian, another Christian, another people who shares in Christ and what Christ has done on our behalf. There should be no day where you don't encourage one of those people. Encourage them through admonishing them or exhorting them, or patting them on the back, comforting them. You need to do this every single day. And so here's what I want you to do. I'm going to pray for you in a second, but a lot of times we have like this response and I say, hey, on the next song, respond. And we're going to do that. But I'm just going to say now you have cards underneath you um, or in front of you the blank ones. You can just fill out one of the blank ones that are right there. And I want you to write three names on those cards today. Three names of people that you know you should be encouraging right now more consistently. And my hope is that this week you will, you will encourage every one of them um, every single day. And maybe you will begin to form a habit of being a person who lives out this command of encouraging one another every single day. And so as you grab those cards, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, band's going to come forward and I'll let them take it away from here. I won't say anything after this, um, but I hope that you'll respond to God in one way or another. Lord Jesus, the American modern church is so far from this for, for far too many people. The church experience is one of, of showing up on Sunday, singing a few songs and watching a sermon. In fact, God, <laughs> even now there's a high percentage of people that the church experience isn't even showing up on a Sunday. It's just turning on a channel on Sunday and watching uh, a sermon and listening to some music, Lord. And that is so far, both of those things are so far from what you have intended a church to be and from what you have commanded the church to be about. And Lord, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of encouragement within the American church. I thank you that, like I said at the beginning, our church gets, I think, an above average grade on this, but we have so far to go still. And so I pray that by, the, uh, by your encouragement today, God, that we would be convicted and compelled and encouraged and inspired to be a people, to be a church that every single day finds a way to encourage another Christian or a lot of other Christians, Lord. I pray these things in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.